Hello and welcome back to the Drop Step podcast. I'm excited today to be joined by my first, uh, I suppose, Philadelphia correspondent, Brian Toporek. Brian, you're a man of many talents. You write about the league at large, but do the 76ers hold a special place in your heart or are they like that toxic relationship that you just can't quit? Oh, definitely a toxic relationship, I think, especially the past couple of years. But no, I was born and raised in Philadelphia. Uh, have not lived there for almost 20 years, but for some reason, I just can't quit these stupid teams. Well, I, I kind of feel like from a uh, from a journalist perspective, you lucked out in a way. You've been following mm-hmm. one of the most interesting teams, certainly over the last decade, since Sam Hinkie got involved all those years ago. Uh, and it's just sort of been a roller coaster slash train wreck since then. But <laughs> one of the exciting things about Philadelphia 76ers is I genuinely believe that they are a contending team this year. I feel like with the way the NBA news cycle works, because they haven't torn trees up for the last three games, they're suddenly out of championship contention. You know, oh, they're not on the level of all these other teams, but I firmly believe they are. They have the reigning MVP, a true MVP candidate, a favourite in many people's eyes. What we're going to be talking about today, we're going to be doing sort of a Frankensteinian episode. We're going to be merging together two of the clickbaitiest topics we could possibly do. <laughs> so this episode is going to do absolute numbers for you guys out there. I want to do a little pr- playoff preview and I want to do a trade deadline deep dive. So how do we combine those, you ask? Well, it's simple. I have compiled my five teams from the East that I think might cause Philadelphia trouble because we're at the point, Brian, where... I think it's safe to say that Philadelphia, barring a Joel Embiid injury tomorrow, is making the postseason. Hopefully. But yeah, it feels that way. It certainly feels that way. They've got the cushion. So let's look ahead to the postseason. We're going to go through these five teams that I think could potentially cause Philadelphia trouble. We're going to analyse their strengths against those teams, their potential weaknesses as well. And where that's going to leave us is deciding... Is Philadelphia fine against this team? Or if they were to face off against each other, you know, tomorrow or when everyone's sort of playoff ready, assuming health and everything, could they be in a little bit of trouble? Could they need to turn to the deadline, sort of shake this long-term plan? Or I say long-term, I I think that the NBA just moves this fast that it feels like the whole (laughs) let's have cap basic free agency feels like it's been in the pipeline for ages. Maybe they have to sacrifice that and go out and get help at the deadline. So we're going to do that style of episode today, Brian. What what are your thoughts on this whole free agency versus trade deadline thing? I think it's a delicate balance to strike. Yeah, I mean, you know, it obviously depends on who's available at the deadline and what the asking price is for those players. Um, in general, I would say I'm pretty... I lean more towards the two stars in depth model than I would the big three. I think it's just going to be really difficult to build around big threes in the new CBA um, with this the second apron that they implemented where you know there's just so many team building restrictions. You don't have a mid-level exception. You can't aggregate salaries and trades, which I think is going to be the big hurdle for a lot of these teams. Um, you know, can't trade a draft pick seven years in the future. Can't trade cash and trades, whatever. Uh, have the frozen draft pick if you stay over the second apron for two of the four years. So I think it's just going to be difficult to sustain success with three guys on max contracts, uh, unless you're OKC and you just have every draft pick under the sun. I think they are going to be the one exception to that rule. But you know, from the Sixers' perspective, if they do have to trade for a third star, they presumably will have to give up 
some, if not most, if not all of the three draft picks that they're able to trade right now. And that's just going to leave them with not a lot of capital to build around this new trio that they have. So for that reason, I'm pretty out on Pascal Siakam. I'm pretty out on Zach Levine. It sounds like the Sixers are too. Um, Mm -hmm. I know DeJounte Murray is a name that is coming up a lot in the last week in connection with them. I think if anything, like if that's, if they are going to make a big splash by the deadline, I think someone like DeJounte makes sense contractually where he could be, I don't want to call him part of a big three because that feels <laughs> a little uh, ambitious. But, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he's on, he signed this four-year, $112, $14 million extension with the Hawks. So he signed long-term at a relatively affordable rate, like high-end starter contract, but nowhere near a max. And I think that's probably what we're seeing in Boston, who I'm sure is one of the teams we're going to talk about. You know, they've got Tatum and Brown on these max deals. They've got Porzingis on a large contract, but not a max. And they've got a couple guys behind them on eight-figure deals as well. And I think, you know, personally, if I was in charge of an NBA team, that is the approach I would take right now. Brian, it's like you listened to my last podcast on this feed with Keith Smith, where we dived into the <laughs> second apron teams. We spoke all about the second apron and the hindrances that teams are going to face. So guys, if you haven't listened to that already, be sure to go and check that one out. And you also made the point about the OKC, which is what we finished the podcast off with, is they are so far ahead of everybody in terms of sort of being ready for this new CBA. So let's enjoy the competitive spirit of this league while we can. I know the window's <laughs> right. closed. But that should be something to consider as well, right? With Joel Embiid, I, he's he's been really healthy sort of for the last three to four seasons, I believe, certainly since we've mm-hmm. come back from COVID. So this idea that, you know, he's only a game away from a season-ending injury or, you know, you don't know how long your window is, I think it might be a little bit overblown these days. But you do have to factor that in. When you have an MVP-level player, this is the whole debate around sort of the fan base and around the franchise, right? It's can you afford to not be all the way in for any mm-hmm. season? Yeah. yeah I, and I, 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 I mean, I, I think the, the tricky thing with them is that their books are really clean. So they've been quick to remind everyone that, yeah, we can create more than a max cap slot this off season, which they can, you know, roughly 55 million, depending on, just based on the current projection of 142 million. So that's great. But that would also, to get that amount of space, they have to relinquish everyone. Tobias Harris, yeah. Nick Batum, DeAnthony Melton, uh, Marcus Morris, Robert Covington, like basically Pat Bev, Kelly Oubre, that, you know, everyone not named Joel Embiid, Tyrese Maxey, Paul Reed, Jaden Springer. That's how they get to the 55 million. So, you know, I, I think, especially early on this season, um, a lot of Sixers fans were really excited about how this team looked under Nick Nurse, how it looked without James Harden, Tyrese Maxey's ascension to what seems like a likely all-star bid in the coming weeks. And I think it's totally fair to be excited about all of those things. But I would warn fans against getting too attached to any player on this roster that is not Joel Embiid or Tyrese Maxey because Basically, none of them are under contract after this year. So you do, you know, this is the thing that Daryl Morey always says. It's you, His job is to balance the short and the long term. So 
you can believe they're a championship contender this year, but then he's also got to look ahead at the summer and say, I have four players under contract. And <laughs> how am I going to fill out the rest of my roster? Like, is there a way to better balance, you know, keep me in championship contention this year, but also now at least we have a little bit more certainty moving forward. Absolutely. And I think that this roster is in a good place to contend. So I sort of want to move us on to the playoff discussion. Now I'm going to go five to one in terms of the hardest matchups that Philadelphia will likely face in the Eastern Conference. And I also want to talk about Denver a little bit because it wouldn't be a Philadelphia podcast without talking about Nikola Jokic versus Joel Embiid. So we'll get to that at the end. That's our little, um, that's our palate cleanser, I suppose. But the fifth hardest team that I think that the Philadelphia 76ers could face in the postseason this year are a team that are sort of on the rise despite some horrible injury luck over the last couple of weeks. I think that series against the Cleveland Cavaliers would be really interesting. And I should stipulate when I say this, a fully healthy Cleveland Cavaliers, which for the moment they project to be for the postseason. So Evan Mobley, mm-hmm. I believe, is out with an eight to ten week injury. He's had surgery, I believe, on his shoulder. Uh, Darius Garland is out for the moment as well, but they're both projected to come back before the postseason. Now, Brian, you just said that you favour the two stars and depth model. What do you think of this sort of, it almost feels like Cleveland have tried to build out with four stars or you know, four <laughs> guys that they hold in really, really high esteem. What do you think of that general matchup against Cleveland? Yeah, I think it would be fascinating. Um you know, I think defensively, you would imagine assuming health on both sides. So, yes, you know, Melton is back in the starting line for the Sixers. I would assume the Sixers would start Maxi Melton, Batum, Tobias, Embiid, and then the Cavs will go with Garland, Mitchell, Max Struess, Evan Mobley, Jared Allen. So, I would think Maxi would guard Garland most likely. I would think Melton would be the primary defender on. Donovan Mitchell. Yeah. Um, I mean, I get like the, the Tobias versus Evan Mobley would be the one that makes you the most nervous. Although it's not like Evan Mobley is bombing away from three. So if anything, you'd be more nervous about just the size mismatch inside, but yep. really it might be that the bigger issue might be on the other end. Cause Tobias tries to go to that post-up game often. And <laughs> I don't think he's going to have very much success against that with, or with that against Evan Mobley, um, I will say Joel Embiid has had success against those two bigs in particular throughout his career. I know Jared Allen has been playing at an unbelievable level lately, especially with yeah. Mobley and Garland out. So, you know, it, it, it's hard to kind of assess what this full strength Cavs team could look like in the playoffs because we just haven't seen it all that much this year. I think I would, you know, barring any drastic roster changes like i i don't think the Cavs are going to trade donovan mitchell by the deadline i think that's a conversation they have in the offseason at the earliest and i know mark stein uh reported something along those lines yesterday and so you know i think the sixers would look at the Cavs as we as currently constructed we're probably slightly favored you know i don't think one team is like a massive minus 400 favorite over the other anything like that i think it would be a pretty close series but mm-hmm. i think given Embiid's success against those two cleveland bigs in particular as long as he can make it through the series healthy i would lean toward them even without making any moves at the deadline 
this sort of feels like your nightmare first round series where maybe yeah. Philadelphia comes through, but like every other single postseason we've seen to see, you don't want Joel Embiid having to face up against Evan Mobley and Jarrett Allen and sort of, you know, take these knocks. There's a slight injury. He's out for a game towards the back end of the series. This would be a slight worry for me. But my analysis was that particularly in the backcourt, I don't think anybody can guard anybody. So yeah. De'Anthony <laughs> Melton is like, he's a decent matchup for Donovan Mitchell, but I was watching them um, in the Raptors' first game with their sort of new core with RJ Barrett and Emmanuel Quickly. And do you mm-hmm. know who the Raptors had guarding Donovan Mitchell in that game? I do not. They had six foot ten Scotty Barnes, who okay. you know, had a lot of abuse last year, sort of for his slow footedness, for getting beat on the perimeter. And this year has been moved to the back line where he can sort of uh, come in and play that really fun free safety role, sort of cause havoc at the rim, having to guard the other team's worst player. So it struck me that, you know, Donovan Mitchell was being guarded by a guy with a hell of a lot of length, a hell of a lot of size. I really like De'Anthony Melton. I think he's really key to this Philadelphia roster. But just when it comes to a six foot two guy guarding a six foot two guy, I'd usually be yeah. fine with that. But I, I just think that both Garland and Mitchell could find success in that matchup. And then on the inside, obviously, you've got Mobley and Allen to the point where, like you said, Joel has uh, sort of historically had, you know, good success against those two guys quite frankly I don't think either are strong enough to guard him we saw last year uh in the first round series against the Knicks you know Mitchell Robinson and Julius Randle really went to work on that front court pairing who were really impressive in the regular season but just that sort of grown man strength that the New York front court possessed sort of shined through so I I just think that this is an interesting series and that no one can really guard anyone it's probably (laughs) going to come down to your spacing on either side where the, the thing about Cleveland this year is it's not Isaac Okoro at the three. It's either Max Struess or George Niang. Sam Merrill has had some decent minutes, not the comedian. Sam Merrill, that's who I mean. Um, to the point where I just think Philadelphia gets through because mm. you've still got this clunky two big spacing. And I don't know if Cleveland has actually figured that out yet. Yeah. But it's going to be a tough one. And it's the kind of series that you don't want to have facing you in the first round. So our current take on this is... It'd be a bruising matchup. It'd be difficult, mm. but Maxi's going to get his own against the Cavs because they don't have a single person in hell that can guard him unless they're starting <laughs> Isaac Coro, who compromises their spacing. Um, mm. We're getting through, but it's like it's a six-game series, maybe even seven, yeah. right? Yeah, oh, yeah. definitely. And and I mean, to your point about the uh, the rebounding, I think one thing that's kind of flown under the radar about the Sixers, you know, with MB. I'd say Embiid's passing and Maxi's just rise to stardom have been the two big stories for them since the Harden trade. You know, one other stylistic thing that Nick Nurse has brought that you know the, his Raptors teams were always great on the offensive glass, great in transition. That at least the offensive glass part has come traveled with him down south of the border to the Sixers as well. So Embiid is hauling in far more offensive rebounds than he did under Doc Rivers. And, you know, I, you mentioned that earlier, their series about against the Knicks last year and Mitchell Robinson just destroyed them that way yeah. in particular. You know, if Embiid is is able, again, health permitting, if he is able to, you know, pound them on the glass, on the offensive glass, generate more possessions that way. You know, I think back to the game they played against the Lakers a couple of weeks ago where he, I mean, he was doing that to Anthony Davis and just, I, I mean, 
know, Anthony Davis is one of the leading candidates for defensive player of the year, and Embiid was just too big and too strong, and AD stood no chance against him. So I think yeah. Mobley in particular would have a tough time um, you know, battling on the boards with Embiid. And I think you're right to point out, you know, it's great that Jared Allen is playing this well without Mobley, but we do still have the question of, are these two big guys, how are they compatible uh, offensively, especially once the playoffs roll around? I was listening to one of my favorite NBA podcasts the other day, uh, Game Theory, Sam Bassini's podcast. I think it's really sort of well-respected around the community, but surprisingly enough, it was the first podcast that mentioned the potential prospect of moving Evan Mobley. And they were only sort of talking about Ooh. it hypothetically as a, you know, if you want to get this team to a championship ceiling, if this front court pairing isn't maximizing each other, is it something you potentially explore? I, I don't think they'll do that. I don't think that they were advocating for that on the podcast. But one, I was surprised to hear it there. You know, I expect Simmons to be the guy suggesting that if it's anyone. <laughs> sure. But, um, you know, they've got questions facing up. But I think that we could sort of conclude that's 1-0 to team free agency next year. That is 1-0 to almost standing pat at the deadline. We're pretty confident that we could just get this done as Philadelphia in the playoffs against the Cleveland Cavaliers. Which brings me on to... My fourth hardest team that Philadelphia could face. And uh, it's an old favorite. It's the Miami Heat. <laughs> yep. Brian. I had a feeling. <laughs> I, I mean, they looked they looked much worse than this this time last year. And, okay. uh, you know, there they were in the finals last year, man. I know that Jimmy's out for the moment, but Bam Adebayo seemingly taking a step forward. Pits up Jaime Hawkes Jr. at 17 in the draft. And he just looks like a, he looks like a sub all-star already. Uh, he looks like their Jimmy replacement in a way, certainly in terms of the aesthetics of his game. He's your jump stop, mid post, all the tricks of the trade guy already. Mm-hmm. Are you scared of this Miami Heat team? Would you just sort of dread having to preview this matchup in March, April? Yes, absolutely. I just don't know how anyone can rule them out after what they've done, especially last year, but really since Jimmy's been there. Two runs of the finals, one of the Eastern Conference finals, does not i mean they're they're just the one team where it's like i don't want to say they're flipping the switch because they've just had to deal with a lot of injuries but does not matter how they look throughout the regular season if they're in the playoffs i i don't want to face them i just (laughs) i i know jimmy butler is all of a sudden going to start hitting three pointers even though i mean he's been shooting better than usual this year but still at low volume but just once the playoffs come around all of a sudden he's just a much higher volume and much more accurate three-point shooter, which is always infuriating. Um, you know, Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson are going to line him up from deep. As you mentioned, Hakez has been sensational. Bam, yeah. you know, I think Bam and Embiid give each other trouble in certain ways. Like Bam, again, much like the Cleveland guys, doesn't have the heft to necessarily bang with Embiid deep, but Bam has really, really good hands. And I think yeah. Miami under Spo is such a good coach that they're just going to can. I mean, I, I think every team is going to go with this strategy to some extent, but once the playoffs come, they're really going to devote all their attention to Embiid and Maxi and dare the supporting cast, dare Tobias, Nick Batum, uh, Marcus Morris, whoever's still on the team. They're like, if you know what, we're going to send extra help at Embiid. He's making the right pass more than ever this year. He's become a much better passer, and Tyrese Maxey is becoming a much better passer, but we don't care. We are going to leave those guys open, and if you beat up, beat us with them, that's fine. 
We're just yeah. not going to let Embiid and Maxi go off. And I think the Heat have the personnel to give the Sixers a lot of trouble. So I think this one would be a toss-up. I'm not saying the Heat would, like, trounce them. But yeah. I, I think given their matchups in recent years, I don't know how you could have confidence in the Sixers definitively winning this matchup as currently constructed. So I think that... The marquee game that Joel Embiid has had, certainly in the last month of playing basketball, was against the Minnesota Timberwolves, where yeah. I think he went off 41 points. It was around that, that sort of Christmas period. And uh, there was a tweet that went out that said, it's the first quarter, and Nas Reed, Rudy Gobert, and Carl Anthony Towns already have two fouls each. And <laughs> you, know, you can speak about Joel Embiid however you want in terms of the foul drawing, but these were all sort of legitimate fouls in this first quarter. And he's so great at drawing them from the free throw line. This is sort of where uh, Nick Nurse is asking Joel to set up. It's like free throw line and above the elbows, etc. playing sort of more in the positions where you might find uh, Demontis Sabonis, where you might find Nikola Jokic. It's we've moved him back. And I think that that complicates this Miami matchup in a multitude of ways, because uh, what's been discussed a lot this year is it's much easier to send help at a guy that has established himself in the low post or in the post, right? Mm-hmm. You can't necessarily see the floor. Doubles can come from the weak side, essentially, and uh, then you're forcing Joel into making tough decisions. With the way that Nurse has moved and beat back, it's now a bit harder to double him and the passing has come along, right? So mm-hmm. I think that there's an argument to be made that Joel and B might be set up for a more successful series against Miami this year. My issue with it is I couldn't think of a single big that I'd want defending anyone more at the free throw line than Bam Adebayo. You spoke about those fast hands. And I I think it's almost the deceleration with Embiid where he really, he's attacked more like a wing than ever this year in that he's leveraging that I can go to the basket or I can stop and I can pull up. There's not a guy in the league that I'd, I'd fancy to sort of be able to mirror those movements, not, dip his hand in the cookie jar more than out of bio. So mm-hmm. if we see that matchup, it's going to have evolved from last year. What are your projections there really, Brian? Sorry, I know I've just dropped this on you. No, no, that's, I mean, I think that's the right matchup to identify. Cause I think you're totally right that bam, I could, I could see bam staying out of foul trouble. Jimmy swiping in Hawkeye swiping in. Caleb Martin swiping in and then be just getting progressively more frustrated as the series goes on. Cause I think that does tend to happen with him. If, especially if he thinks he's getting fouled early and isn't getting those types of calls. And we see that in the playoffs where they, you know, typically do let you play through a little bit more contact and Lord knows that Miami team is going to enjoy that. <laughs> gonna freedom. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so I could see MB just getting a little f- like flustered, frustrated in his head and then trying, you know, to even go more into grifting mode or like exaggerated contact mode, like hunting shots that he shouldn't just to prove a point. And I think that's going to be a complication for the Sixers all year and really has been throughout his tenure there is you know, when he's on there are few, if any, players better in the league than Joel Embiid. But you know he has these quarters or these games even where 
you know, he's not always on. And in fact, you know, the free throw line jumper isn't dropping. As you said, he can revert back to the post up, but Miami's going to destroy him. And he's going to turn the ball over 18 times if, if they go that route. Um, I think one other thing working in the Sixers' favor this year compared to past years under Nick Nurse is that they have a lot more off-ball movement, especially yeah. guys cutting to the rim. So when Embiid is drawing double teams now, he knows there is going to be someone likely cutting to the basket, and he knows where that help is coming from. So he is making the right pass in that regard. I mean, he would do it last year, but it was – you know, under Doc, it was basically just running and beat hard and pick and roll, and then everyone else just standing along the perimeter and yes. hit, you know, take it, take an open shot if it comes. But now you're seeing, especially with like Kelly Oubre, um, he's been a big help in that regard. So I think there will be some more outlets for Embiid that he hasn't had in years past. But again, in general, I, I think you know we saw earlier in his career, Toronto was the one team that just really annoyed the hell out of him in Boston as well. I think Miami would be very much in that same mold this year. Do you have any inside information as to did Philadelphia hire Nick Nurse this year just so Joel Embiid wouldn't have to play against his teams anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, Embiid had success against those teams. So I think, uh, honestly, I, my, my Real conspiracy theory is that Doc probably would have, or, or sorry, Maury probably would have liked to make that move a couple of years ago. But you know, the Sixers hired Doc before they hired Maury and gave Doc a five-year contract. So I can imagine the owners were not thrilled about swallowing. I think they're already paying out sixteen million for golfing money for Doc Rivers. I'm guessing they did not want to pay twenty-four million for Doc Rivers to go golfing for the next three years. I, I slightly knocked the Bill Simmons podcast earlier. I do listen oh. to the Simmons podcast every week. Um, oh and there was a segment with Doc Rivers on talking about him uh, and Larry David. play and, and how Larry David had this uh, conspiracy that the team that won the in-season tournament was going to absolutely flop afterwards. So maybe it's Larry that we need to you know get doing the podcast. You know, the Curb Your Enthusiasm guy, right? This is uh, oh, okay. These are the things that we should be thinking about. But to, yeah. to bring it back to... But this is such an awkward transition. This is this is going on the editing room floor by the time this podcast goes out. <laughs> to bring it back to the Heat versus the 76ers, while like they have a plan for Embiid, whether it works or not, I think we saw in their final series last year against the Nuggets that they're ill-equipped to handle a two-man game on the perimeter with a dynamic perimeter guard. Introduce Tyrese Maxey to the fold. Haywood Highsmith could maybe guard Maxi. You might see Jimmy switch on to him in stints. Maybe Caleb Martin has a go. But the Heat lack that premier perimeter defender that could truly shut Maxi out of the series or really sort of like force his efficiency to dwindle. Mm-hmm. How much faith have you got in Maxi sort of going forward into his first postseason as a real primary guy? Yeah, I mean, I think they're going to they're going to harp on him to stay aggressive. I think that's been one of the key messaging points throughout the year is that, you know, obviously Joel Embiid is the reigning MVP. You want to have your offense flow through him, but you know, second quarter, fourth quarter, beginning of the, of those quarters, especially with Embiid out, that has been maxi time. Um, you know, I imagine that changes throughout the playoffs because we're not going to have as many minutes without Joel Embiid. So he will have fewer opportunities to just take over the team on his own. 
but I think they're going to kind of implore him like, hey, you know, <laughs> Miami is focusing a lot of attention on Joel. You, we really need you as this primary scorer as well. There need to be games where you lead us in scoring, not Joel. Uh, I will say that the thing that differentiates him from James Harden in that regard, obviously James Harden is a much better passer than Tyrese Maxey at this point in their respective careers. I mean, you know, Harden's one of the best passers in the NBA. Uh, Maxey has definitely taken strides in that regard, but is not anywhere near James Harden's level yet. Uh, but he moves off the ball, which James Harden really did not. I mean, it was hard enough to get him to take a catch and shoot three much less, you know, a re- relocation three or a dribble handoff, something like that. That It just wasn't in the playbook last year, and it's something that the Sixers can run with Embiid and Maxi. So in that respect, I think I have more confidence in the success of that two-man group translating to the playoffs than I did the Embiid-Harden pick-and-roll because, I mean, we saw it against Boston – if you load up against it, you need a counter. And they didn't have one. And their offense just ground to a halt throughout that series. There was one game, I think it was game five, where they just, Boston, like, inexplicably just stopped doing what they had been doing for the rest of that series. And the Sixers went, you know, spammed the Embiid Harden pick and roll, ran it, or won it running away. But otherwise, really didn't have as much success with that as they did throughout the regular season. I do think the Maxi Embiid pairing is going to have more success in the playoffs just because it is less predictable. And that is something that Nurse has really harped on throughout the year is just making this Sixers team less predictable so opponents don't know what to expect coming into the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. And to your point on Tyrese Maxi sort of taking over for stints in games when Joel sits this year, when Maxi has been on the floor without Joel Embiid in 588 minutes, they are a plus 3.81 in net rating. And that is not because the offense drops off to a massive degree. There are 120 offensive rating, which I think would sort of rank you, uh, you know, towards the top 10 this year in the league. Certainly mm. you know, top 10, top five, even uh, it's, it's the defense, if anything, that sort of drops off when Joel goes to sit. So I've got faith in Maxi as an offensive engine, just because particularly in the regular season, he seems to push the pace both, fit, both physically and sort of metaphorically in a way where he's happy to take shots early in the shot clock. He can get all the way down to the paint and he loves playing in transition as well, right? Mm-hmm. I think that the thing that really stood out to me about Tyrese Maxey last year was his ability to make layups while it looked like he was running the 100 meters. Yeah. He might be the guy in the league that sort of ran fastest into his layups on the break. And that worked when you had James Harden feeding him those opportunities. So I've got faith that Maxi could have success in a series against Miami, particularly because they're quite old as well. Yeah, you know, they've got like a they've got a youth movement coming through in Hawkers and Jovic and you know, these two-way guys that they've picked up, guys like I think Jamal Kane, uh, Orlando Robinson. But the core of that team. They're going to be playing Kevin Love minutes in this series. I, I don't know if Kevin Love's going to be able to get back to stop Tyrese Maxey in transition. <laughs> right. So, you know, I still feel like I feel like that's an advantage. My my other question would be: you mentioned Jimmy going God mode in the playoffs, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Do the Sixers have a good enough wing defender on this roster to deal with the Premier Wings? Oh, that's a sad shake of the head there, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't 
think so. I mean, they, you know, have Tobias, they have Batum. I don't think either of those guys is stopping Jimmy. They can bring out Pat Bev, but he's not big enough. Covington can at least get his hands in some passing lanes, but it seems like he is just in... I don't want to say he's in Nick Nurse's doghouse. I don't think he's done anything wrong, but he's on the outside of the rotation right now. Yeah. Um, so, no, I don't think they do have someone, and that's, that will be an issue when we talk about Boston later. Uh, the problem being the obvious answer to that problem now plays in New York instead of Toronto. Uh, OG Ananobi would have been a really, really logical trade target for them for this specific purpose. Um, but yeah. you know, I I clearly don't think the Knicks acquired him just to trade him a month later. And even if we look <laughs> ahead to free agency, uh, you know, again, I I don't think they traded quickly in Barrett with the intention of OG being a half season rental. So, uh, you know, I like would Dejounte Murray be the answer? I I don't think so. The the Bogdanoviches either what. Pick, pick Bogdan, Boyan, whichever one you want. I don't think, yeah, yeah. you know, either of them are a good enough defender. Maybe you can pilfer someone from Brooklyn, like a Royce O'Neal, Dorian Finney-Smith. And just, I, I mean, I think one of the things that works in the Sixers' favor right now is that they have more wing depth than they've had, honestly, in the past 10 years. So yep. if one guy's getting busted up by Jimmy, all right, we've got four other options. Let's just throw it out there. And we know... That Nick Nurse, unlike his predecessor in Philly, uh, he's probably the polar opposite in that regard, where he is willing to experiment and change things up on the fly, and he is going to be, you know, he, he has the mad scientist reputation. So I think he will throw everything he possibly can at Jimmy and Bam. I just don't know, you know, his hands are somewhat tied by the personnel currently on this roster. So that's the thing. Can Nick Nurse overcome the lack of personnel literally just you need to win four out of seven games right you know mm -hmm. it's the old adage when it comes to the playoffs but you don't need to be perfect in these series you just need to force jimmy to have an off night here or there while joel goes off while tyrese goes off so i wonder if i wonder if there's an argument like do you still keep your powder dry to go out there and make those free agency moves now personally I mocked up a couple of moves for Philadelphia to potentially make. And you mentioned one of the guys that I would target once we go through all of these teams, right? And that's Dorian Finney-Smith. I think that Dorian can help you across multiple playoff matchups. And he's shooting the lights out this year. Yeah. And do you think that Tobias is more ideally a three or a four? Oh, definitely a four at this point. See, this is the thing, right? Finney-Smith... Finney is sort of just going to go out there and guard the most versatile, uh, you know, wing scorer that the other team has regardless, right? That was his role on Mavericks. That's always been his role, even on the Nets as well. Mm -hmm. I, I just wonder if a move for Finney Smith almost, does it make Tobias slightly less essential to the starting lineup? Does it, you know, sort of force him into this role where maybe both of them are on the court or, Maybe you're closing with Finney Smith. I don't know, but they do have these contracts, Philadelphia, where you could send out Marcus Morris to the Nets. Uh, you could send out maybe the 26th first. The other thing about dealing with the Nets is you can also the protections on the 27th first that you owe them as well to sweeten the pot. Mm -hmm. That would get you below the luxury tax line as well. That's a move that I'd seriously consider making for your Jimmy Butlers of the world, trading for Dorian Finney Smith. 
Yeah, I, I would say, you know, he hasn't picked up as much steam uh, among Sixers fans as some of the other guys that I mentioned earlier, but I would imagine that's just because he hasn't been tied to them directly in a trade rumor. I'm sure if, you know, Woj or Shams or Mark Stein or Chris Haynes or someone says Sixers are interested in Dorian Finney-Smith, all of a sudden we're going to have a lot of, how would this guy fit on the Sixers? And there would be a lot more interest in him. Um, yeah. you know, I, I think, you know, the dream which I don't think is going to happen at this trade deadline at all. But you know, with OG off the market, you know, going back to what I said earlier about, you know, I, I would do the two stars in depth unless you can get a guy on a sub max deal on that third contract. That's Mikhail Bridges. Like he's uh, the guy who I would just empty the clip for if I'm the Sixers, but I don't think the the Nets are doesn't I've, I've heard nothing that they are even considering moving him. And even if they do, do the Sixers have enough to get him when, you know, an OKC can come over the top and offer 10 first round picks and still have five left that they can trade. So yeah, I think, you know, keeping your eyes on the, these like role player slash starter, you know, I don't even want to call them high end starter, but just solid starter types, I think is the more pragmatic approach as we head toward the deadline. Like I, you know, Woj uh, in recent days and Jake Fisher as well just reported it today. Like it seems like the Sixers are more likely to make these smaller moves than they are a big blockbuster splash ahead of this deadline, at least. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. So DFS, he's let's put him in the maybe pile for now, yeah. and we'll move on to Team Three, the third most difficult matchup I think that Philadelphia faces in the Eastern Conference, and. Ironically, it's talking again about OG Ananobi because I'm going to talk yeah. about the New York Knicks. They look like the best team on the planet since OG has joined somehow. I think that, you know, their their plus minus rating is through the roof through six games. This, uh, th- there's, a, there's a common theme in what we're discussing here. Bruising series for Philadelphia, mm-hmm. like absolute wars that they would have to go through. Brian, what's your initial thoughts on facing this new look New York? What did you think of the trade every anyway? Because everyone said their opinion on it. You know, what's what were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I thought it had the potential to be a win-win. And so far, so good on that front. I think both yeah. teams should be pretty thrilled with the early returns. I know the Raptors um, are outside of the play-in picture right now. And there's still some questions about their future with Siakam in particular. But I think they should feel very good about how quickly he has looked next to Scotty Barnes. And even RJ Barrett has fared pretty well so far. Uh, but to the Knicks, I mean, man, when they they played last week and just beat the brakes off of the Sixers and, you know, Joel Embiid tweaked his ankle uh, early in that game, then <laughs> injured his knee later in the game, still came back in, has not played since, which is just great stuff all around. Um <laughs> You know, I thought, especially with Mitchell Robinson out, looking ahead to that game before, you know, maybe maybe that game plays out differently if Embiid doesn't injure his ankle early on. But I I thought I don't see how I mean it's Isaiah Hartenstein and who like there's no way that the Knicks are going to be able to stop this guy and and Embiid did you know prolong the thirty ten streak so he did did get exactly thirty points and ten rebounds I believe um, <laughs> right but. Yeah, I mean, they otherwise just got annihilated. Like, Miles McBride just lit him up from deep early on, and then it was just an avalanche from there. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I think this new-look Knicks team is scary. We saw OG guarding Maxi at times in that game, which I thought was an interesting wrinkle. And, you know, Maxi is fast enough that he could blow by OG sometimes, but I think OG's length gave him some trouble, and Maxi really struggled to finish at the rim at that game. Uh, but, you know, to your overall point, this is definitely just another one of these, like, knockdown physical series, just like it would be with Miami and possibly even Cleveland, where, you know, really... As we go through these, the more you go through them, they're like, wow, there's no good answer in the playoffs. It's like Indiana, just because you're going to be running up and down and then neither team's going to play defense. But other than that, like whoever you draw in the first round is probably not going to be a super fun opponent to play. And it's, you know, I, I think I would be surprised at this point because I don't think they're catching Boston for the one seed. Like It feels like whoever the Sixers draw is probably going to be at least a six-game series. Yeah. I yeah I mean I I don't think they I I don't think they blow any of these teams out. Yeah yeah I I think so. Isaiah Hartenstein leading the league in estimated defensive plus minus, uh, an absolute defensive god apparently. Yeah, uh, and and the other thing about the Knicks to remember as well is uh, I believe that the Knicks were denied a disabled player exception yes. this week because there's hope that Mitchell Robinson can return. So. You've got to add in the fact that if Embiid is having 48 minutes up against the bruising centre, whether it's Hartenstein or whether it's Robinson, you've got that to consider. The other thing about the Knicks is, despite playing the least spacing player of all time, or at least the least spacing player in the league, in Mitchell Robinson, his his average shot distance is uh, 1.1 feet, according to Basketball Reference. I looked that up earlier. So wow. he is just a dunks guy. He's he's not spacing. He's not got a floater, despite all these sort of like off-season clips you see of guys hitting threes above the break. Yeah, You've got bruising defensive play against both Maxi and Embiid. And you've kind of got a spaced floor as well, to the point where, let's say it's Brunson, Dante DiVincenzo, OG Ananobi, Julius Randle, and one of the big guys that's a decent amount of spacing. So it's like we're sort of combining these two problems where we spoke about the Cavaliers having big bodies to throw at Joel. And we've spoken about Miami having that as well as sort of having a space floor. They got so far in the playoffs last year because they were able to really harness the unpredictability of sort of like three point shooting variants. Mm -hmm. We now get to the Knicks, our third hardest team, you know, for my money that the Philadelphia 76ers will match up with. And you get a combination of the two where it's really stout defense and guys that can get them up and sort of depth in that as well. So mm-hmm. I, I I worry about New York because I feel like they gave up a lot in this OG trade. Like people are suddenly talking about Emmanuel quickly, like he's going to be Steph Curry, RJ Barrett, well, <laughs> former third overall pick in the draft. It's... Uh, it's just a really good team. It's like, there's not Mm -hmm. a guy that's going to play for them in the postseason That's less than a seven out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're just, they're well-constructed. They complement each other. Well, you know, it's a team built in the style of Tom Thibodeau. I think they've done well, you know, not trying to force him to (laughs) like, not trying to have him adapt to a team that doesn't play to his strengths and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think it would just be, I don't want to say the Sixers would definitely lose. I think it'd be a toss up. We did again, you're right to bring up Robinson because it does sound like he might be back late in the year or, you know, the Knicks also 
notably did not give a, a first round pick in the trade for OG Ananobi. And it sounds like they are hoping to make, make another move by the deadline. So just like the Sixers, the Knicks also might not be a finished product here and could be even better by the time February 9th comes around and the dust has settled on the trade deadline. Yeah, they could have that offensive punch off the bench once again that they sort of sacrificed in the OG trade. Um, mm. I, I suppose the thing I think about from a defensive perspective is Joel Embiid has had one of the best defensive se- uh, seasons of his career, regular seasons thus far, I think. Nick Nurse mm. has utilised him in drop. He's really sort of built this system around him, really utilising that rim deterrence. I I was listening to another podcast the other day. All I do is listen to podcasts, Brian. I, I don't have a job, <laughs> but it's just it's podcasts and watching games. Nice. And uh, they said that they they would fancy the Knicks in a series against Philadelphia because of Jalen Brunson attacking Joel in a drop. Now, we yeah. saw kind of famously Jason Tatum go off for 50 in that last year's Game 7 where Embiid was left on the island. I'm sorry, this feels like a, a therapy session <laughs> at this point. Yeah, I, I'll survive. This, this brings me to my next point where I look at uh, the, the challenges that Philadelphia could face and I also think as well as Finney Smith, if you can go out and grab someone, you should go out and grab an elite perimeter defender because Anthony yeah. Melton is really good, but I kind of want 48 minutes of it in the postseason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree. That's where, you know, a DeJounte Murray would make sense. I know his defense has dropped off uh, in Atlanta compared to his San Antonio days, but I have faith that Nick Nurse, being who he is, could help get Murray back to that. Um, I think, too, I know that he's been a very divisive name among Sixers fans since he came up. Uh, I think Chris Haynes of Turner Sports was the first one to mention him last week, and now it's starting to, you know, I know Kyle Newbeck of Philly Sports, and he's like, basically, uh, you know, as all these names come up in trade rumors, he checks with the team, the team shoots it down right away. He's like, all right, this is not going to happen. He said that's not happening with DeJounte Murray and he found that notable. So I, you know, I'm not saying he's definitely going to be a future sixer, but at least seems like the interest is legitimate there. And I do think, you know, there's some concern because the pairing with him and Trey Young hasn't worked as the Hawks anticipated, which is why, you know, they are off to the start that they are and they are open to taking offers for Murray and basically everyone else on the roster, not named Jalen Johnson. Yeah. I think, Maxi is a much more versatile player than Trey Young, can work off the ball a lot more than Trey Young. We saw it last year with Harden, but I mean, I, I think even this year we see like Pat Bev running the offense sometimes and giving Maxi a breather and where he can serve as a cutter or a catch and shoot guy. So I actually have more faith that a Maxi Murray pairing would than I do a Trey Murray pairing. Um so I, I do think he would make sense. I know Delon Wright is another name that is a, yeah. a fan favorite on some sections of Sixers Twitter. I would imagine he would be a much less expensive option than Murray. So if the Sixers are hoping to largely roll over their cap space and draft picks for the offseason when they can either go free agent shopping or make a big trade, maybe Delon Wright's the compromise. Um, you know, Daryl Morey said earlier in the year, that basically it's going to be really hard to make a trade because if we do, we need to get a guy who's going to be in our top eight, top nine, which is already difficult because we're already at the point where 
you know, someone like Robert Covington is not getting minutes. Like it's got to be a high end player. So I don't know if Delon Wright clears that bar. I, you know, Dejounte Murray clearly does. So that's the thing we've got to keep in mind when we're talking about you know some potential role players off the bench in particular. But he's at least another name I've seen thrown out there that should have some intrigue when you know you think about. I would say it's probably most applicable for this matchup against New York with Brunson, Cleveland, obviously, with Mitchell and Garland, and then uh, Milwaukee with Damian Lillard as well. Second hardest team that Philadelphia are going to face in the postseason. There you have it. I think that they're uh, they're Cleveland on steroids to me, really, the, the Milwaukee Bucks, where they've got this too big thing going on, but we've seen that it has a championship ceiling. And... They've got a guy in Damian Lillard that can provide you all the off-the-bounce punch and juice that Donovan Mitchell would, as well as the pull-up shooting that sort of spaces out to 30 feet plus. This is a... I, I think that this would be sort of a highlight matchup for the playoffs this year, regardless of whatever matchups get drawn in the Western Conference, in the Eastern Conference. This would be a really, really fun series to watch. Um, and one that I, I don't think I could call either way, because much like in this sort of Cleveland series where we're saying that no one can guard anybody, I'm I'm going there again and I'm saying that no one mm-hmm. can guard anybody. If we didn't think that Cleveland could guard Tyrese Maxey on the perimeter, if we thought that <laughs> Miami were going to struggle, Malik Beasley, Malik Beasley, the guy that falls asleep on the court, I, I don't yeah. know, Damian Lillard in a switch, it's... <laughs> It's it's the kind of series where like you could have three or four guys going off for thirty points a game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that would be the big concern. Even I would say Maxi is honestly the bigger concern for Milwaukee than Joel Embiid, which is an absurd thing to say about the reigning MVP that he is not the biggest threat. But you know, between Giannis and Brooke Lopez, I think they're better equipped to deal with Embiid than they are with Tyrese Maxi. Where I'm with you, I I don't I can't fathom how they would slow him down other than throwing additional help at him. But if you're doing yeah. that, are you single covering Embiid? And if you're, you know, you can't, you can't double cover both of them. Or you're just going to have too many holes that you spring. And I think, I mean, the defensive struggles they've shown all year are a concern, not just against the Sixers, but I mean, that's, you know, if you're predicting what is going to trip up a team in the playoffs and you're, you know, trying to lay out, okay, how are the Milwaukee Bucks going to lose? It is that. And, you know, also we have a first-time, first-year head coach. Um, you know, I, Nick Nurse has won a championship, has been in many playoff series. So we just don't know what the Bucks are going to look like in the playoffs because we haven't seen them under this head coach before. And does does that give the Sixers at least, you know, a minor advantage? And sometimes in the playoffs these minor advantages add up or a series is so close that you know that, that could be one of the main differentiating factors. So ironically, I think I actually might like the Sixers chances a little more in this series than I would against Miami in particular, which, right. you, you know, sounds absurd when you look at the standings, but I think just personnel wise, they have more answers for Milwaukee and Milwaukee doesn't have as many answers for them compared to some of the other teams we've talked about already. 
yeah, I thought it was too spicy to put New York at two. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like a team that's like, I think yeah. they're 24 and nine or something like that in the East. Um, you know, Milwaukee, despite all of the criticism, have got off to a flying start. I got, um, yeah. I had Lewis Satzman on the pod, who is an editor for Raptors Republic, but he also writes Bucks coverage for NBA.com. And uh, it was at a time where the Raptors weren't doing too well. We sort of made this point where all the coverage the Raptors have received so far was fairly positive because it was a new guy in the building. You know, Scotty was breaking out, but they weren't playing very well. Mm-hmm. And for the first couple of months of the season, you didn't hear a single good thing about Milwaukee and they were top two in the East for that entire yeah. time. Right? <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, could they be like the worst vibes team to ever win a championship if they could become these <laughs> defensive like uh, deficiencies? Yeah, I mean, we'll see. You know, the good thing is they've got a couple more months to coalesce on that end of the court before the playoffs begin. But when you got Giannis calling out the equipment manager and saying like it's got to, you know, it's got to start with everyone. He's got to wash our jerseys better. Like that's <laughs> typically not what you want to hear from your star player uh, at all, much less in the middle of January. It's not a great start. It's not a great start. Um, the other couple of things with the Bucks, I hadn't thought about the coaching point of view where it's almost given me Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker in the Empire Strikes Back vibes with Adrian Griffin Jr. previously being on the Toronto coaching staff, right? Yeah. Just lessons to be learned. I am your father could become a meme if this podcast takes off and Adrian Griffin <laughs> gets schooled by Nick Nurse. Um, I wanted to talk about transition with these two teams because Milwaukee leads the league in transition efficiency this year. Uh, offensively, that is. They are scoring 1.22 points per possession in transition this year, which is the elite of the elite. They're up there with OKC and funnily enough, the Washington Wizards, which is a name I did not expect to see up there. But they aren't a fantastic transition defense. And I think you alluded to this earlier in the podcast, Brian, Nick Nurse traditionally has really good transition defense, but when you're basing your whole model around this big seven foot guy, that's going to have the ball in his hands on the other end, it's quite difficult to ask him to sprint back on every possession. So mm. have Philadelphia struggled in transition this year. Yes. Um, I've got cleaning the glass pulled up right now. They're <laughs> allowing the eighth highest percentage of uh, transition frequency. They are 16th in points per play allowed and they are 25th in points plus per possession so definitely has been an issue especially as of late with Embiid out they're just getting it's like every single possession they just miss a shot get run off the floor and transition rinse repeat it's been very very frustrating to watch and it's honestly it's one of the uh, subplots for the trade deadline that I think for the Sixers has been slightly underreported or under acknowledged is that I don't know if Nick Nurse has full confidence in Paul Reed or Mobamba, so it wouldn't shock me if the Sixers are looking for a minor upgrade on that front. Now, I know Bismarck Biombo just got waived by the Grizzlies, and I wonder if there would be some interest there on the Sixers' side if they are worried about this. It's just been an issue for them as long as Joel Embiid has been on the team. Typically, he's on the court, they are elite, they have a great net rating, He's off the court. They get blown off the floor. As you mentioned earlier, they've been better this year because of Maxi. Um, yep. But I mean, now they, they are now two and seven in games that Embiid hasn't played this year. Again, hopefully that won't be the case in the playoffs. Like hopefully he will make it through an entire playoffs healthy for once. But mm-hmm. 
we haven't seen it. And you got to plan as though he's at least going to miss one or two games. And what's the solution if he does? You know, can Paul Reed hold down the fort? Paul Reed, Mo Bamba hold down the fort. And how does that affect the transition defense as well? I think it's a completely fair question and something that would be a major issue uh, if these two teams met up. Kevin O'Connor and Nikias Duncan went off about Mobamba in the Christmas Day game against Miami. Yeah. <laughs> I think he had a really good performance for whatever reason, but I wouldn't be relying on that in the postseason. Um, when it comes to transition, I, I think that obviously if we're talking about Milwaukee specifically, we're talking about Giannis. And mm-hmm. we alluded to the fact that you don't necessarily have a Jimmy defender on the team earlier. No one has a Giannis Antetokounmpo defender. It's a whole sort of system onto itself. And I think that you've got one half of that in Joel. Traditionally, teams that have a really big rim deterrent stationed on the back line, ready to pounce on his, uh, particularly his drives in the half court. They've had a lot more success. But I look at the wing room, which you said has the most depth that Philadelphia has had for the last decade, which I'm inclined to agree with. But it's Nick Batum. It's Tobias Harris. It's Kelly Oubre, it's Robert Covington, Daniel House Jr. if he cracks the rotation as well. I feel sorry for all of these guys having to match up against Giannis Antetokounmpo. And I don't (laughs) think that any of them, some of them are decent team defenders, but I don't think that any of them bring the physicality needed for that sort of matchup. Yeah, I think Marcus Morris might have the best chance of anyone, but even that is a little spotty. So I think you're, you're right to bring up, you know, maybe you have Embiid take Giannis more often and you put Tobias or Marcus Morris on Brooke Lopez since you're less scared of him. I mean, he has a post-up game, but he does a lot of his damage from the perimeter now. So, yep. you know, you can cross-match basically and have a four on their five and have Embiid take Giannis, which is something we've had seen. You know, Doc Rivers used to do that um, not throughout an entire game, but... That was typically one of his strategies. It also allows Embiid to be more of a roamer around the rim instead of, you know, the one thing you really don't want with Embiid is him having to chase Brooke Lopez out to the perimeter because that's going to draw him away from the basket and all of a sudden your (laughs) rim protection and rebounding is gone. So I think they'll do what they can to reduce his movements on defense. And if that means parking him on Giannis and daring Giannis to drive on him and trying to draw offensive fouls, I mean... That that is the concern with that strategy. If Giannis draws one or two fouls on Embiid early, how does that affect his defensive aggressiveness throughout the rest of the game? Can he try to block shots like he normally can, or is he mm-hmm. a little more reticent to do so until we get into the fourth quarter and he's sure he's not going to foul out? Come on down, Dorian Finney-Smith. Please, yeah. trade that line. <laughs> that's, uh, I think this is going to be my takeaway from the podcast, that you, you need to get one of these big physical guys in there. I want to move on to our number one matchup. And after that, I think we'll round up and sort of talk about the deadline a little bit more. And the sure. Nuggets, because I have a fun little take about the Nuggets. So oh the Celtics are obviously the team in the East that yeah. are going to pose anyone the most problems. Um, and the, the thing that we haven't spoken about yet is... This one-two punch has been so phenomenal for Philadelphia this year. But quite often they're still playing. I know that they had sort of this to the nth degree with PJ Tucker last year. Quite often they're still playing with a guy that teams are comfortable either leaving to self-create or or leaving to shoot. And I look at Boston and I look at that 
defensive versatility where they are fielding five good defenders when they're closing, whether that be with Al Horford or any of the other guys, basically. And I just think, is it worth moving for one more guy that can create for himself in the fashion of Tyrese Maxey, in the fashion of Joel Embiid? I know that you said you wouldn't necessarily favour the three-star method, but mm. could a could a Zach Levine pay off for drawing attention away from that two-man game? Yeah, I mean, I think he could. Um, I think the concern from the Sixers' perspective would be defensively. How does a Maxi Levine backcourt hold up, especially yep. against a team like Boston? And I think that is very fair. I mean, it it sounds like, by all accounts, or by all accounts but Shams, uh, the market for Levine is just not really there at the moment. So I guess, you know, if the, the Bulls asking price falls by the deadline and they say we'll do it for Tobias Harris in the 2026 OKC Clippers Houston pick. Yeah, that's something I would consider, but I think it's going to be much higher than that. And frankly, with the way the Bulls are playing lately, they might not even feel the urgency to move Zach Levine that they did earlier this year. They might be more willing to table those conversations until the off season, or, you know, maybe they just continue their hot play as of late and they don't have to trade him at all. So I think it makes sense to at least probe the market and see if any of those guys become available. I just don't know that they're going to. I think we've seen a lot of the big movement that we're going to already. And now we, it is kind of focused more on the role player type. So you know, Utah is another team that came up as a swing piece of the trade deadline. You know, Do they look to move? a Jordan Clarkson, for instance. And I think you run into the same question of like, yeah, Jordan Clarkson would be helpful in the six or second unit, give them some extra juice alongside Kelly Oubre offensively, but man, defensively, no way. <laughs> He's going to, you know, how can he even stay on the floor against Boston? Probably not while those top six guys are out there. Like maybe while, uh, you know, they, they go into the deep bench units. Uh, early the houses in the second quarter. And yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but, you know, for 10 minutes a game. So, you know, that that archetype is one of the most difficult to find and acquire, uh, whether through free agency, draft, trade, and especially through trade, it's typically one of the more costly to acquire. So first, someone of that ilk needs to even become available, which I'm not sure will be the case. And even if they do, are they are they the right fit for the Sixers? Do they have the right assets? You know, can any other team outbid them? I think it's going to be tricky in that regard. So that's why I look more toward the three and D type or toward you Noah know, Bogdanovich, who just adds more shooting. Because I think you brought up Tobias Harris earlier, is like when we're talking about Dorian Finney-Smith, and you know, does he get boxed out of the closing lineup if they add him? Uh, I don't yeah. care. Like, I think, I don't, I, I don't think his spot in the closing lineup should necessarily be safe. I, I right, think okay. things should be very matchup dependent. And if he's, you no, know, we saw the first few weeks of the season, Tobias Harris played really, really well. Then yeah. he went to about a month long swoon. And then even, you know, when he played the Hawks on Wednesday, he had 30 points, so like box score-wise, he looks great, but he still has these possessions where he either hesitates or just refuses to take an open shot, and it just grinds the Sixers' offense to a halt, and they just can't afford those types of possessions in the playoffs. So mm -hmm. if you can find someone who is 
you know, Doc used to always say like quick decision-making was the thing for Tobias. If you can find someone who that just comes to more naturally, because it seems like for Tobias, it's just always been something he's had to focus on and something that is not innate in him. So if you can find that type of player, by all means, I would be just, I'm skeptical that that player is out there and makes sense for the Sixers at this juncture. DeJounte Murray is starting to make more and more sense to me. When it was a name that you yeah. brought up at the top of the podcast, it was a little bit confusing where, you know, we've seen these struggles in the Atlanta backcourt, as you mentioned. But the fact that he can potentially kill two birds with one stone, being your defensive stopper-ish, you know, defensive stopper adjacent guy on one end, certainly on the perimeter, as well as a guy that can ballast second units or ballast, you know, ensure that Pat Bev isn't, running the offense for periods in the postseason. <laughs> no offense to Pat yep. Bev. That, that is a name that's starting to make more sense to me. Uh, I think that Jordan Clarkson and Kelly Oubre Jr. would be the most high school mixtape uh, offensive <laughs> hero that we've ever seen. That would be really yep. fun. Yep. Uh, I, I had a specific question for you lined up pre-podcast. I, I saw that you, know, you had a lot of affection for the idea of OG Pulling up in a Philadelphia 76ers uniform. I think guard OG Ananobi is Alex Caruso. That just feels sort of mm-hmm. right in my head. Yeah. Would you give up the three picks for Alex Caruso and Zach Levine? Yeah, that's been a debate that's been raging on Sixers Twitter for a while now. It, I mean, it's tough to say without knowing the other options that are out there. Like if I thought yeah. there's a chance that Mikhail Bridges became available and would want to go to Philly. I would save all the powder for him, even if it cost them their best chance of winning a championship this year. Um, you know, by all accounts, the Bulls do not want to trade Caruso. So it's this is a fun hypothetical, but I, I don't think it's uh, in, in uh, a realistic option. And I, I would just, again, go back to the short versus the long term. So let's say they give up all three picks for these guys. They yeah. can operate as an over-the-cap team this offseason, which is great. You can save bird rights on Tobias and Melton and everything. I mean, we'll see you know, who they would... I, they would almost have to send out Tobias in this trade just for salary matching purposes. So then we're left with you know probably some combination of Batum, Covington, um, Marcus Morris, Daniel House, all of whom are free agents. Like the thing that would make me nervous about that trade is that, okay, we've got, we got guard and we got center. Those are all good to go long-term. What are we doing it forward and how are we filling out that depth chart? Cause we, you know, it's, it's like bird rights or nothing basically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I did, I, I had a trade ready cooked in the oven before you came on brian okay. and that was that was a three-teamer where the guy that we've spoken about before in this podcast dorian finney smith comes over to the philadelphia 76ers and you send them uh i believe it was marcus morris so they're taking 17 million back in that which gives you added flexibility when you're trading for caruso and levine mm-hmm. you are adjusting the protection on the 27 pick so you're actually going to make that unprotected in this scenario, which I know is a risk for yeah. DFS. But that then means that you can send out Tobias Harris and uh, the Turkish goat himself, Furkan Korkmaz, <laughs> to the Chicago Bulls. And you can bring in Caruso and Levine and you stay under the luxury tax line. 
you also send out the three picks in that scenario but it's just like the it's the maxing out what assets you've got to sort of go all in this year and then as you said you still re-sign uh d'anthony melton you still keep paul reed around uh nick batum comes back if he's still inclined to play at the end of the year Jaden springer's going in this scenario i think to brooklyn i might have mentioned that uh but it can work with or without springer that's the one that i had in mind because in my mind you're addressing the three needs of the 76ers in this scenario you're adding the big perimeter defender in dorian finney smith while also not compromising your spacing you're adding the elite uh, perimeter defender in Alex Caruso, a guy that can potentially act almost like Drew Holiday did in that Milwaukee Bucks system where he would drive guys towards Brooke Lopez. I think that you could almost get that sort of pick and roll defense going with Joel, make his life a little bit easier and drop. Mm. And then you're also adding Zach Levine, who can ballast your second units, who can blend in as your small forward in between Caruso and DFS uh, in closing units as well. This is the one that I liked. This is this is my pitch. If I've got Daryl Morey in the elevator for 60 seconds, <laughs> this is the idea that I'm running past him. Yeah, I don't think it's a, an immediate no from the Sixers. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it would, it would really depend on what he thinks becomes available this offseason and yeah. how you weigh that. I mean, with the Kawhi Leonard extension yesterday, you would imagine, I mean, Kawhi is definitely off the board now. You would imagine just given how well the Clippers have played, you know, really since the first, after the first couple of games, uh, after the James Harden trade, I'm guessing James Harden and Paul George are also going to stay there. And I'm guessing even if James Harden leaves, <laughs> the Sixers are not exactly top of his list to come back to. So, you know, I think Paul George is very likely off the board for them as well. You know, let's say Donovan Mitchell becomes available this offseason. I, I don't think he makes a ton of sense as a trade target for the Sixers. So it's like, yeah. you know, are you saving your powder for a Mikhail Bridges or a Laurie Markin if he becomes available this offseason? Or do you just go all in now? You know, this is this is why Daryl Morey has paid millions of dollars to make these decisions, because there's not an easy answer here. Um, you know, you did bring up Batum, and I will say, you know, there is a lot of speculation right after the trade about whether he was going to retire or not, which I'm not really sure. Yeah. I'm not sure where that came from exactly. uh, Cause he, you know, later said he was just dealing with his wife had a medical situation and she should be fine. But, you know, he rightly prioritized his family over basketball for a few weeks. No one should have a problem with that. But his wife did say on Twitter this past off season that he was planning to retire after next year's Olympics. Now, right. So Drew Holiday also said he was planning to retire a couple of years ago and has since changed his tune there. So I don't know definitively either way what Batum is planning after this year, but I I do worry that, you know, the any hypothetical involving like we can keep Nick Batum long term, uh I'm just not sure that's the case. So you know again, like I love the idea of also adding Dorian Finney Smith in here because that does address the big concern I have of, hey, we don't have any forwards under contract after the <laughs> yeah. season, but we do still run into the issue of like, okay, so you know, Tobias is gone in this trade, so you know, especially if I would have to like think through the actual numbers, but if Levine's coming back, Caruso, DFS, you know, Maxi, we'll see if he makes all NBA and gets the thirty percent or just gets the twenty five percent max, but like, yeah, you know, are we? 
do we even have a mid-level exception available this offseason or are we like we might have to I mean, you know the, it might just be nothing but minimum contract guys and their number 20 or the 2024 pick that they have to fill out mm-hmm. all of their forwards so is that enough when you're when you've got the Jason Tatum's and Jalen Brown's and Jimmy Butler's and Giannis's of the world and Chris Middleton's that you're going against in the next couple of years even a Julius Randle I mm-hmm. it makes me nervous like I, I I think I would I'm not totally against the idea I just you know if I'm prioritizing a skill set or an archetype either at the trade deadline or the off season it is probably someone uh, with a little more two-way play size i mean they the sixers have said all this so i'm not breaking any news but that's that's the archetype i think they are uh envisioning as well and i think that's probably among the reasons why they are lukewarm on levine unless the price comes down considerably yes yeah i think it's all about price when it comes to levine i will say that just after the james harden trade occurred I had Eric Pincus on the podcast, I think a Bleacher oh, Report yeah. Uh, alumni or yeah. Yes. Current, current writer. Yeah, no. Current, he, yes. he just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he just put out, uh, he saved the Lakers today with a three-team trade. So everyone go check that out. They, he pilfered the poor Memphis Grizzlies. <laughs> It'll be in the description. Oh, yeah, Marcus nice. Smart, an interesting guy for them. Um, yeah. I, I ran Lowry Marketing by them, and I sort of said, if you could just send all the picks in the world uh, to Utah, for Lowry to Philadelphia, would he have been the guy because he would have potentially still enabled you to have a little bit of cap space with that sort of 17 million, 18 million that's on the books for next year? And he just mm-hmm. laughed at me and he said, No, I'm sorry, you trade three or four first round picks with the hope of drafting Lowry Markinen. I don't think that one's going to happen. So, you know, I, I've, I'm making a habit every couple of months of running a Philadelphia trade past a Bleacher Report journalist nice. and then sort of saying, <laughs> Ah. Well, maybe yeah no no i don't think so so yeah I'll, I'll get someone else on next time i think adam hurley also writes for you um, there we go there we go there we go just two positives quickly with the celtics i don't think that Derek white or drew holiday are fast enough to guard tyrese maxi and al horford is another year older the Celtics have really liked having Kristaps Porzingis out of the action, not guarding centers. Mm-hmm. I don't think that Joel Embiid allows you to do that. I know that it was sort of highly publicized that they had Drew guarding Joel for stretches in that Celtics matchup a month or two ago. I think there are ways that this Philadelphia team can get at Boston offensively. I think that they're going to struggle to stop them on the other end. Yeah, I I can see it. Um yeah, I mean, Horford has tormented Embiid for years, but Embiid has at least <laughs> yeah. started to swing the scales of that matchup. I think that Porzingis acquisition is a fascinating wrinkle to this. Uh, obviously, yeah. does not have the size to bang with Embiid down low, but it's similar to what we talked about with Milwaukee and Brooke Lopez. You know, do you potentially... I mean, you, you might not have any place to hide Embiid if... If Porzingis, whenever Porzingis is not sharing the floor without Horford, he is going to have to chase Porzingis out to the perimeter. Or, I mean, who do you, who else do you put him on? So, yeah. does that draw him away from the basket? And does that open up some driving lanes for Tatum, Brown, Drew, Derek White? I think that could be problematic. You know, I think um, the Celtics obviously are a very high volume three point shooting team, so it'll lean into some variance there. 
the Sixers have done a pretty good job of limiting three-point attempts so far this year and are, I think they're fourth in frequency and seventh? Seventh in three-point accuracy allowed. Now, some of that stuff is noisy, obviously, but I think that is typically uh, a Nick Nurse thing as well. So which team wins that stylistic matchup of you know, jack 53s versus limit the number of threes would <laughs> yeah, be interesting. Yeah. Um, I like, I, I, I at this point, I think just with Embiid in particular, there is so much psychological damage done by the Celtics that I could, there's no way I would pick the Sixers to win this matchup as currently constructed. But I also don't know, barring like a moonshot Mikhail trade, you know, I don't think Bogdanovich. Either of the Bogdanoviches swings the matchup in the Sixers' favor. I don't even think DeJounte Murray swings the matchup in the Sixers' favor. I think yeah. their only hope is that the Celtics just miss a ton of shots from three and that they don't try to force the issue inside because that's not typically not how what they do. The other thing is, I, I think that if Philly and Boston met each other dependent on seeding, I, I think it's really important for Philadelphia to try and get the two seed this year. I know that's difficult because Milwaukee always seems to win above 50 games. Mm-hmm. Ideally, you're playing Boston in the Eastern Conference Finals. It's not your second round matchup like it was yeah. last time out. We've gone through the East today. There are some really tough opponents that Boston could face. And while we're all expecting them to make the Conference Finals, it's never a guaranteed thing. So we might be planning for this and you might never have to you know, face that horrible eventuality that you're you're coming up against this sort of uh, impenetrable starting five. So it's, it's just one more thing to consider. I, I think you're right. I think that the Celtics are kind of out of bounds this year and it depends what sort of happens at free agency next year. That might be the argument for holding on to your assets and either waiting for that third proper superstar guy or really fleshing out your team in a similar way to what they've done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, do you do you throw all your chips in to be the second best team in the East? That's the issue, I suppose. Uh, right. I'm going to do a little quick fire about some of the other guys that we haven't mentioned. Brian, I think that you've mentioned most of these guys. Well done. You've done your homework on the trade deadline. In fact, <laughs> the most recent episode of the podcast with Morton Stig Jensen was a trade deadline preview. Go and check that out. There'll be a link in the description with that. Episode 622 with more, did you say? Uh, what are we up to? Six, six, uh, 60 something at this point. I've, I've cut 40 episodes out. Uh, I've cut this whole season out, man. There you go. Yeah. You guys are cranking it out. You've, you've got to be following that. If you're listening to the drop step, I don't know why you're not also listening to Brian and Mort's podcast as well. There'll be a link to that in the description, but, Pascal Siakam, you said no at the top. We'll just do yes, no's on these yeah. guys unless you find anyone particularly interested. Pascal Siakam. Yeah, hard, hard no for me. I'm gonna, I've got something in Forbes coming for that uh, probably either later this week or next week, but definitely, definitely not. Zach Levine. Softer no, but still a no for me, unless the price, again, if it's like Tobias and the 26 Clippers Houston pick, sure, but I would not trade the 28 Clippers pick just for him. Nice. We've spoken about DeJounte Murray at length on this podcast. Uh, you've mentioned either of the Bogdanoviches. I love the guy in Atlanta. I love the spacing. I, I can never remember which one is Boyan, which one is Bogdan. But uh, <laughs> I think that either would be good acquisitions. Again, it's all dependent on what you're giving out on the other side. We've spoken about Alex Caruso, Dorian Finney-Smith. 
I've got the Malcolm Brogdon, Jeremy Grant platter, and I tried to play mm. about with this pre-pod. You can't do this without including Tobias Harris, which for me turned it into a no. Have you got any interest in Malcolm Brogdon and Jeremy Grant as a duo? Yeah, I, I would. I'd be open to it. As you say, it depends on what else Portland would want in return. Would not again. Would not give up the twenty-eight Clippers pick for him because I. I don't know whether Jeremy Grant has positive or negative trade value at this point. I mean, he's a good player, but just having someone locked into a long-term deal like that is yep. scary under the new CBA. So, you know, if it's like Tobias Springer, we could throw in Cork Boz just to finally resolve his trade request. If there is, <laughs> yeah. if there's a way to do it and also duck under the luxury tax, you brought that up earlier as a possibility. I think that is something the Sixers at least should be exploring um because they did get under it last year so if they do it again they will reset the clock on the repeater tax and that's especially important because the tax rates get really really punitive even more than they were before under this new cba once you're about 10 15 million over the tax line and you know if they are adding two big contracts like grant and brogdon and then the maxi is going to be on a max after this year they are going to be start veering into luxury tax first apron second apron territory pretty quickly here yes yeah absolutely um you said that eric is writing something about the lakers pilfering the grizzlies marcus mm-hmm. smart of any interest for your philadelphia 76ers i would say yes if only to torment boston fans because they would yeah be, they'd be so livid and i'm very much here for that uh, we did get word today that he's got a, I believe, a thumb injury that is going to knock him out for the next six weeks. So, you know, I I would frankly be surprised if the Grizzlies move on from him. I, I feel like they just have to treat this as a lost season and yeah. they're going to get a mid to high lottery pick out of it. And being able to add to that core, you know, add a mid to high lottery pick to Ja, Jaron Jackson Jr., Desmond Bain, and Marcus Smart is actually pretty terrifying. So, yeah. I think that's probably the play for them. But if they are open to moving Marcus Smart, I think the Sixers absolutely should be open to it and interested in it. Because while he's, you know, what, he's six, six series, six four, I believe he's listed as, but he can play up. So, you know, I, I think he could actually guard, you know, maybe not be the primary defender on a Tatum or a Jalen Brown or a Jimmy Butler, but he could take those matchups at times. And I wouldn't, he could at least switch onto those guys, and I think he'd be fine. Definitely. Uh, a guy that could not switch onto those guys is Buddy Hill, but he'd add a hell of a lot of shooting. Any thoughts on Buddy Hill? Yeah, yes or I, no? I, yeah. I'd be in. I'd be in. Um, yeah, I mean, Kuzma? I very much in on Kuzma, yeah. If we could do you know, a, a Kuzma, Tyus Jones, I think has been a Tyus. popular framework thrown around uh, Sixers Twitter, I think that would be pretty interesting. Nice. Yeah, that adds up. And last name, because I had Lowry marketed as well. I wanted to run it past my, my second Bleacher Report guy. Uh, Kelly Olynyk. Could he yes. be the guy to sort out your big man depth? Yes. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, again, I think there are going to be a lot of teams after him if Utah is willing to move him. Uh, you know, I wonder now, Utah's been playing really well over the last couple of weeks. So whereas they might have profiled the sellers before, I don't know if that's the case now. Yeah. Um, but if they're open to it and if Danny, I mean, that's the other problem with Utah, right? Danny Ainge is running it. So he's going to like, much like Masai Ujiri, he's going to ask for the world for anyone. Like if he's asking for the 28 Clippers pick for Kelly Olenek, <laughs> yeah. absolutely no. not. But 
if he sets a reasonable price, yes, I think the Sixers should be open to that. I think that's fair enough. Um, Brian, we've gone through the trade deadline. We've gone through potential playoff opponents in the East. I'm keeping you for five more minutes because I want to run this take past you. I want to use this to promote the podcast, to endure, uh, to adorn myself to the Philadelphia fan base. So Philadelphia makes it through the East. They match up with the Denver Nuggets in the West. My take is that the Denver Nuggets are a better team than the Philadelphia 76ers. I think that on balance, Nikola Jokic is a better player than Joel Embiid. But much like your Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier back in the 70s, you know, these sort of all-time boxing matchups, I think that styles make fights in basketball. And I would wager that Philly would beat Denver in a series because of Joel. I think that Joel is the nightmare matchup for Nikola Jokic. If Philadelphia somehow got to the finals and they faced up against Denver. What are your thoughts on that? Because last time we saw them play, I know that apparently Embiid ducked the the next game in the regular season, but last time we saw them play, Embiid went 44. He looked Mm -hmm. incredible. It it essentially sealed him the MVP, right? Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that matchup? First of all, I love your take. I hope you're right. (laughs) (laughs) You missed, yeah. Um, I mean, my, my first thought would be I would be off Twitter for two weeks. Like that, that <laughs> more than anything else, that series would end the internet. Uh, yeah. But no, I, I think it would be a really interesting battle of styles. And I think what's one of the things that's so annoying about the Embiid Jokic discourse beyond just like both guys are great, and I don't understand why we have to pit one against the other. I mean, I I get it. That's just how this how this works these days. But like, I've just always been in the camp of like I just enjoy watching both players. I think it's cool that both guys have kind of, you know, back a couple of years ago, it was, well, you know, Jokic is a not great defender, but he's so much of a better passer than Embiid. And Embiid is so much of a better defender, but is way, way worse as a passer than Jokic. And that's, you know, it's still true to an extent, but Jokic has improved defensively in recent years. Embiid has improved as a passer in recent years. So they're, they're like looking at each other as foiled and are using each other to figure out how to shore up their own weaknesses, which has been really, really cool to see developmentally. Um, you know, I think the Nuggets, their starting five, I'd say, is better than the Sixers starting five. I think they are going through the pain of getting their young guys ready for bigger roles, bigger you know playoff minutes, frankly. And I think the Sixers have a lot more veteran depth to lean on. So... If they're beating in the finals, that means the bench, the Nuggets bench held up for the first three rounds, and maybe those guys are seasoned by that point. But that is a potential swing factor here that the Sixers could lean on or could be in the Sixers' favor. I will say, when in that game that you referenced, uh, I believe that was the game where Doc put P.J. Tucker on Jokic after halftime. And Embiid, again, kind of got to play free safety around the rim because when Embiid was playing Jokic, Jokic was just dicing him apart with passes. So if you can keep Embiid closer to the rim, then some of that at least took away some of Jokic's efficiency as a passer, effectiveness as a passer. So I'd be curious if they tried that strategy again with Marcus Morris in place of PJ. Um, Probably not. Morris twin. The revenge in the final. That's That's a good point. Oh man, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. He's going <laughs> to avenge his brother. There you go. Uh, yeah. So that would be really interesting. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, like we've said before, I don't know that either team has the personnel to stop Jamal Murray or Tyrese Maxey. I mean, KCP is also a good defender. I think he'd try, yeah. but I think Maxey's fast enough that no one on that team can stick with him over the course of a full series. Uh, it would be, I mean, I think that's the dream matchup for the finals, or that's what the NBA 100%. should be hoping for. Uh, I don't think it happens, unfortunately. I think the Sixers are probably the reason why it doesn't happen, but uh, other than the internet imploding, that would be so much fun. Tired is hoping for Lakers versus Celtics. Wired <laughs> is hoping for Nuggets versus 76ers, I think. Right. My, my final bit to add on why I think Philadelphia matches up really well with Denver is I don't think that you can have anyone other than your five guard Joel Embiid. I know that the Celtics are trying it with Drew Holiday, but not many people possess a Drew Holiday. So mm -hmm. that means that you are going to have Jokic guarding Embiid and someone that pivotal to your team cannot afford to get into foul trouble. So I think that Embiid has a fairly light series in terms of sort of the physicality that he's facing. I think that Nikola Jokic, despite having incredibly fast hands and sort of great hand-eye coordination, is a guy that he could bait from the foul line, sort of how we saw him bait Rudy, Nas Reed, Carl Anthony Towns in that Timberwolves game, and you know, as he baits everyone on, on a nightly basis, basically. <laughs> right. And my other thing about stopping Nikola Jokic on the other end is he can absolutely do everything on the offensive end. He can pass, he can post up, he can shoot, etc. But my step one first stop in Nikola Jokic is preventing him from going to that go-to bucket, which is the eight pound dribbles while I post up and I hit mm -hmm. a little hook shot over you as the shot clock is dying. And if I don't hit that hook shot, I've somehow got the tip in, right? I feel like he bails out this Nuggets offense far more than we care to admit in that he's just so good at that sort of one rudimentary play, the back down. Mm -hmm. And I think even if you look at the Phoenix Suns, they made a very calculated choice when they looked to see how are we going to win the Western Conference? And they went out there and they got Yusuf Nurkic. Yusuf Nurkic is not a great defender on an NBA court, but he's really big and he's really strong. And he's a guy that has played Jokic well historically. And I think that's because he can stop Jokic from getting towards the basket. And in a similar way, I think that Embiid could basically force Jokic to play from 15 feet and above, play above mm -hmm. the break, make him hit the threes as he was hitting in the postseason last year. And equally, obviously, Joel not only is going to be playing at the charity stripe, he's going to be stretching him out to three as well, which I think we saw a lot of highlight plays in that last matchup. Joel hitting sort of clutch threes or threes in the third and fourth quarter that you know, made for really, really good Instagram reels the next day, basically. <laughs> um, but that's, that's my take. I, I just think that if they get there, Styles make fights. I think that, uh, you know, Joe Frazier, I think he was from Philadelphia. I remember him being in the first Rocky film. I think, yes. I think he's uh, our guy to take down Muhammad Ali in this scenario. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would certainly love to see it because the uh, Philadelphia Eagles sure aren't getting it done this year. Ah, uh, uh, man, I, I wish I knew more about the NFL. I've only got the NBA bug, but uh, no, I, I catch for the best. Eagles. Good, <laughs> good. <laughs> Jalen hurts bad, huh? Jalen hurts uh, real bad uh, right about now. Yeah. Um Brian, let's let's not end on that note. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. 
Uh, I've really, really enjoyed our chat. We've gone longer than I thought we would, but this is the issue when someone comes on and says, I've got all afternoon. <laughs> basketball, people that know basketball, man. Thank you so much. Are you looking forward to the postseason with Philadelphia? I mean, it feels like Lucy with the football at that point, if I say yes, right? <laughs> I, I haven't learned my lesson, apparently. But yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see what happens over the next month, the trade deadline. I mean, you know, whether... Frankly, like for someone like me who's writing about this team in multiple spots, like I, you know, will appreciate whatever they do. But if they don't make a big move and leave open this flexibility, that's four more months of content for me. So I, I might win either way here. Uh, but no, I, I, it was great to be on. Uh, thank you for having me. Happy to come back and, uh, you know, talk, talk more Sixers or talk general NBA once we get into the madness that is going to be early February. Yes, yes, absolutely. I can't wait to do it. Guys, go and check out Brian in all the links below. I know he writes for Forbes. He writes for Bleacher Report. Do you occasionally appear on Rights to Ricky Sanchez as well? I do not, or I have not. I mean, we'll we'll see. Maybe I'll... Breaking news. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where Who else can people find days. you, Brian? Uh, well, for now, you can still find me on Twitter uh, at B-T-O-P-O-R-E-K. You can find me at Liberty Ballers as well, uh, the SB Nation Sixers blog. So we got a great staff there. Check out uh, <laughs> our, our gradual descent into madness, which is typically happens from January through May. Typically happens 12 months of the year following the Philadelphia 76ers, but <laughs> you wouldn't right. have it any other way, right? Guys, thank you for listening all the way through i've really enjoyed recording with brian i hope you've enjoyed listening make sure to tune in to another episode of drop step back next week thank you see you later oh right